0: Church, it is great to see you guys again, and if this is the first time, or first time in a long time, we started a new series It's not new anymore, I say it every single week, we started it back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future, and so we've been tracking along in the life of Christ, we're out of the teaching ministry of Jesus now, we've kind of, we're moving our way closer and closer to the cross, and we're looking at some of the different encounters that he had uh, with various people, and so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. Uh, this passage is going to be about uh, the, the Last Supper, uh, which is Jesus' last supper that he had with his disciples, the night of his betrayal, uh, just before his crucifixion. So very appropriate that we're talking about missions, barbecues, and things like that. Uh, uh, your stomach's going to be grumbling a little bit as we talk a lot about food today, right before lunch. And so um, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, this is one of the two ordinances that we regularly observe as a church body here. The other being baptism, and uh, this being the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. Uh, a lot of times too, all talking about the same thing. And so uh, I think I've told you uh, uh, about this before, but if you've been around the church, uh, one of my three blooper real moments as a pastor came first time doing the the Lord's Supper ever, Uh, shared this story before, but uh, it kind of brings back some bad memories and stuff. It's kind of a Uh, intern over at North Oaks Bible Church back in the day. Travis was our worship minister at the time. I think it was my second sermon I'd ever given in my entire life. And uh, I just never had a good experience the first time doing communion, first time doing a wedding, or the first time doing baptisms or anything like that. So it was a communion Sunday. I was kind of wrapping things up in the message, and I looked back there, and I noticed, okay, the clock, we're doing three services at that time. And so we had one at like 8 o'clock, 9.30, and then um, 11 o'clock. Right, So you're back to back to back, and you've got like 10, 15-minute buffer zone in between. And I don't know if you noticed, I'm not the greatest at, at, at tracking time-wise and stuff. And so anyway, this is one of these Sundays. I'm looking in the back. The clock's not working, and I'm wrapping up the message. I'm like, I have no idea how much time we have left or anything like that. So I wrap up the whole message, and I start to call the ushers forward to, to serve the elements and to do... The Lord's Supper that time. And as soon as I do that, Travis starts walking down the aisle. And he's like, "Ooh, hey guys, uh, my apologies. We're gonna have to stop right there. We need to start bringing in the second service is about to start coming in. So you guys can just grab it on the way out the doors. Uh, we're gonna be doing a little fast food communion today. And so, uh, and I, I was just devastated, right? Rookie, second time pastor. And I was like, that is not what you do for the Lord's Supper. I apologize. I was like, guys, I'm so sorry. I was like, that is not what God, what Jesus had in mind of the night of the Last Supper when he said, do this in remembrance of me. Just a little fast food communion there. So, um, but it is bringing bring up this question, right? Like, so, so what does Jesus have in mind when he tells us to do this thing every time that we gather together in remembrance of him? Right? Because we, is, is, we, we know that it's not this casual event that you grab on the way out, and it's, it's not an appetizer. It's not a snack that you have, a precursor to lunch or something like that. But I think we've all had this experience, right, where you're kind of sitting there in the pews. I know I have it growing up for the longest time before I really fully understood a lot of things or uh, was mature enough to kind of sit there and reflect on what it was. Like I had this experience where I'd sit there and the elements are being passed by, and I'm looking at this cracker, and I'm looking at this stuff going, okay, are we, are we talking about cran-grape here today or, you know, a little cranberry juice? Or maybe they're going with Merlot today, you know? And why are we being so cheap? Why not the challah bread from, from Whole Foods or something like that? And you know what I'm talking about? Like, your mind can go a million different places when you get in the routine of a tradition, and it keeps passing by week or month after month or maybe even week after week in your tradition. And over time, you start to sit there and go, okay, like, what in the world are we even doing with this thing? Today, it's a question I want to look at today in the Last Supper. What does Jesus have in mind for us as we take this meal month after month after month? And so, again, if you have your Bible, Matthew twenty-six is where we're going to be. Um, I will be jumping around a little bit. I'm going to be kind of showing this in the context of a few different passages, and uh, even in light of the Passover meal from Exodus chapter twelve. And so, we're going to be jumping around a little bit today. But um, what I want us to do is, my hope and prayer at the end of this service, we are going to be participating in the Lord's Supper together. And my hope is that, you know, as we talk about some of these elements and we kind of focus in on what God has called us to uh, through Jesus Christ, that we would, exactly as I was praying earlier, be able to leave the baggage at the door, to be able to leave all the different distractions and the different things that are kind of weighing heavy on our heart, and that we just be able to be okay with simplicity this morning. Does anybody need a little simplicity in your life? Anybody need just a little sobriety to be able to come in and say, you know what, all the chaos, all the mess, all the performance, all the show, all the glitz and glam, like, No, no, no. I just want to just just savor this time with Jesus. My hope and prayer is that we will be able to take this meal and be able to cut through all that other mess and just be able to savor what we have in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ today. So again, Matthew 26 is where we're going to be. Um, You remember where we are in the story, right? We are moving to the cross, uh, kind of in the story. This would be Maundy Thursday, which if we were completely aligned, it would be next Thursday. But um, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal. And so we know from the story that uh, Judas has already made up in his mind that he's going to betray Jesus. He's sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He's waiting for his time at this point in time. He's, Jesus has already come into Jerusalem on the Mount of donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna, Palm Sunday. That's Sunday. On Monday, he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he's, and, uh, you know, he's ripping into the religious leaders. Um, so that's, that's Monday. He curses the fig tree, which is symbolic of, of, uh, of the Israelites who have denied knowing him. Uh, Tuesday is going to be this time when his authority is going to be questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, we've been talking about that uh, the past few weeks. Uh, we're going to see its significance here in just a little bit, but that was not uh, by accident. It was all part of the plan. has a lot of significance here, but we, that was Matthew 22 and 23. Pharisees and Sadducees, they're questioning Jesus. Are you really who people say that you are? And they're putting him to the test. Um, immediately after that, he goes the, the Olivet Discourse where he's giving people a preview of the end times. Um, and kind of saying, hey, here's what to expect. When I return again, here's how you're going to know it's the end times and things of that nature. Wednesday is a silent day during this week. Again, last, last week of Christ's life, uh, the, fair, the, the religious leaders are kind of putting the, the finishing touches on their plan to be able to arrest Jesus. Uh, and they're trying to do it in a week of, of Passover where hundreds of thousands of Jews will have ascended into Jerusalem and uh, there's gonna be a lot of people there. And so they're trying to arrest him and capture him Uh, with as little fanfare as possible, because obviously some people have uh, a lot of affection for him. And so Wednesday is a silent day, and that's going to bring us into Thursday in this week. So here's what takes place. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Okay, we're going to talk about Passover here in just a minute, so hang on to that. Verse 18, he replied, and he said, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says." My appointed time is near. Remember, timing is everything for Jesus, right? This is all about timing, people coming to know at the exact right right time. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house, he says. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover meal. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. The next few verses are going to describe Judas's betrayal, not so much the betrayal, but Jesus really calling out the fact that Judas did it. I'm not going to Hamper on that or go off on that because that's a a sermon for a different day here. Uh, Verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, church, let me ask you this question. When Jesus is holding this bread and this cup, what are we talking about here? Are we talking literal body, spiritual body? What, like, how are the people taking it at this time? Because right, this is a thing that has divided many within the, the universal church for a really, really long time. We're not, we're not holding uh, to transubstantiation, which is this idea that somehow miraculously Jesus is speaking literally about his body and his blood. Right? That is that, that view where somehow in the consecration of the elements, the, the, the bread and the cup literally become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not what we see here. It's just not what he's doing. He's not taking literal flesh. He's standing there. He's holding this, this bread and this cup symbolically. Um, we're also not going to hold to consubstantiation, which is a, a variation of, of transubstantiation, trans being change and con being with, meaning the presence of God, the presence of Christ is with us in the literal bread and in the literal cup. And so we're not holding to even some sort of a hey, in some mysterious, even real spiritual way, it's inhabiting these elements or anything like that. Jesus is holding this bread. And this cup in a very symbolic gesture in a very meaningful way in order to represent exactly what he's about to go do there upon the cross. And so when we're taking the Lord's Supper today, it it has incredible spiritual significance. We're talking about uh, a meal that is spiritually vital. It is a symbolic act of worship whereby Jesus invites us to eat and drink while remembering everything that God has accomplished for you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is all about remembrance. Okay, and so Luke's gospel is going to pick up on this a little bit better than Matthew does, but Luke's gospel in chapter 22, verse 19, uh, Jesus is going to put it like this. He's going to say, He took the bread, gave thanks, and He broke it, and He gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so it's very, very similar language here, but Luke's gonna remind us that the entire point of the Passover week is to remember the salvation which God would bring his people through the, shed blood of a, through the shed blood of a lamb, which is also the exact same point of the Lord's Supper. The entire point is that we would not be so caught up in the day-to-day activities of our week that we forget about exactly what it is that Jesus came to do on our behalf. Now, let me ask you this question. Anyone ever need their memory jogged from time to time? Anybody have a, a, a tough time remembering important details, anniversaries, birthdays, important things like that? Anybody remember these times like, way back in the day when you remembered phone numbers <laughs> I, 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 or addresses and you knew where your friends lived and didn't have to look it up every single time on your phone and follow directions and stuff like that? I, I, I don't know about you, but I can have like eight different reminders set up on my phone and somehow I'm still going to forget what I'm supposed to be doing. It's just going to happen. Cat's going to call me at work, babe. I need you to bring home eight limes and somehow I'm going to come home with like four lemons. Right? It's going to be the the wrong thing. We're prone to forget, right? We're prone to forget these different things. It's just it's the nature of the beast. Like we get going in a million different directions and we have a tendency to forget. That's why one of the major themes that you're going to see running from beginning to end of Scripture is do not forget. Remember what it is that I have done for you. Remember that God alone is faithful. Deuteronomy 8.11, beware Israelites that you don't forget the things that I've done on your behalf. 8.18, remember that he alone is the Lord your God, that he's the one who gives you power to do your work, that he's the one who provides for you on a daily basis. Like the judges, what was the problem during the nation of Israel during the seven cycles of the judges? Right? These are the people that, that continue to be caught up in all of this abundance and all this peace and this time of prosperity, and it says that they forgot the things of God. It's the same thing with the kings. You've got good kings, you've got bad kings. What defines the bad kings all throughout the Old Testament? These are kings that ruled in such a way they completely forgot about God. They believed they were God. Like they elevated themselves, and they forgot that he alone was God, and it says they continue to do evil in his sight. Bad things happen when we forget who's God right? Like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is going to rip into an entire church there in Corinth in the first century Um, because they are a church that has forgotten why we even gather to observe the Lord's Supper. I mean, listen to what he says. This is not what any of us want to hear as a church body, but he's going to say this. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you because your meetings do more harm than they do good. In other words, church, like when we gather together, what he's saying to that particular one in there in the first century is you guys are doing more harm than you are good, right? Like like your gathering is not helpful. That is like every single pastor's worst nightmare that that God somehow by the Holy Spirit would look upon what's happening here and be like, yeah, uh, you're actually hurting what I came to do. Paul's gonna say in the first place, here's why. I hear that some of you come together as a church and there's divisions that are there among you. Church, are there divisions ever among us? Do we happen to be a divided, universal body of believers here in America today? To some extent, he says, I believe it. And here's why. He goes, no doubt there have to be differences among you in order to show which of you has God's approval. In other words, I'm rich. I'm well off. I'm doing well. Clearly, God's favor is upon me. Like, that's why we're different. Like, you don't have very much over there. That means you're under the curse of God. And he's sarcastically kind of saying, look, I get these div- divisions that you have here because you gotta have them. In other words, how in the w- otherwise, how in the world are people gonna know that you're favored by God and other people aren't? Like That's the state of this church right here. And he says, this, he says, when you come together, um, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating anymore. In other words, like you're having snacks. I, I mean, you're having appetizers for the main course which is supposed to come later on. You're not even absor- observing the Lord's Supper um, as Jesus has given you to observe the Lord's Supper here. For as you eat... Each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another one gets drunk, which is why we do cran-grape, right? Um, But that's the problem, right? Like Some of you are so, like, it's just about eating. And you don't care about the body. You're not grafted into the same family here. You're not brothers and sisters. You're sitting there hangry. And so you're sitting there going, okay, I'm going to go eat my food and I don't care about what anyone else is doing. And some of you are bringing, like, you're forgetting, okay, this is symbolic of what Christ's blood is doing. You're bringing all the booze, and you're making it into this giant party about yourself that that's not what it's supposed to be about. I mean, just massive, massive dysfunction in this church that's there in the first century of Corinth. And and I want you to notice what what Paul sees as a solution to this problem. He's going to say, throw all that stuff out. And he says this, he says, for I receive from the Lord that which I've For I received from the Lord that what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, don't forget what I came to do. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in what? In remembrance of me. Don't forget what this whole thing is about. Don't get so caught up in your prosperity that you begin thinking that you've accomplished all this stuff and it hasn't been given to you by my grace and by my grace alone. Don't be so caught up in these hierarchies and all these divisions that exist among you that you forget that my blood has accomplished a unified body of believers around here by which you look at each other and look and say, brother or sister in Jesus Christ, united by the exact same blood. I don't forget everything that I've come to and accomplished on your behalf. Church, all of that dysfunction that Paul's looking at right there, all of that self-righteousness, all of the divisiveness that's going on in that church, Paul's looking at that and saying, Stop. Let's just come back and strip everything else away to the simplicity of the table. His body, which is broken as a substitute for you, his blood, which was shed that you could be set free. And so, Jesus, on the light in which he's betrayed, he's going to give on this meal to the disciples. He's going to say, Every time that you gather together, come and do this in remembrance of me. And he gives us a meal, it's not just a message right? He doesn't only give us words. He gives us a meal in order to represent this message that we need to remember for the rest of our days. And he says, I want you to look at what's, what's, what's served in front of your face. I want you to, to, to observe it. I want you to touch it. I want you to, to smell it. I want you to taste this food. And as often as you do this, remember what it is God has accomplished on your behalf through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, church, we're not a people that are very good at remembering. And so he gives us this tool in order to help. And now here's how the whole thing's gonna play out. I wanna give you two things. I wanna just narrow it down to make it very, very simple. Two things that we can reflect on while you are holding those elements in front of you. Every single time as the, the elements are passed and you're looking at that bread and you're looking at this cup, uh, I want us to hold on to two different things right here. Number one, first thing we have gotta remember is that Christ's body was broken as a substitute for you. Can you just say substitute with me? I want you to say that three times, okay? Because I repeat it a billion times um, every single week. Substitute, substitute, substitute. And you, you've heard me rail on this word probably a lot, right? Like I, I, I share this thing all the time. And the reason that I do this is because this is not how we think typically about Jesus Christ and what he came to do. We love Jesus, Right? You talk to the average person on the street, hey, Jesus is fantastic. He's an enlightened master. He's one of the prophets. He's one of a million different gods. He was a great moral teacher. He's a good dude. I'd hang out with him. He's my homeboy. Like, everybody loves Jesus, right? They're probably even wearing the cross around their neck. And you sit there and you say, hey, I like your cross around your neck. Why do you wear that thing? It reminds me of God's love for me. It reminds me of Jesus' love. Why is the cross a symbol of love? I, I don't know. I don't know. The reason that the cross is a symbol of love is because he died on that cross as a substitute for you and me. And it's not what we typically think about when we think of Jesus. We don't put ourselves in the place of that cross. We don't look at our sin as anything that is separating from a holy God. And this is the thing where he's going to give us this meal and he's going to say, Enter into this moment. And as you look at that bread which has been broken on your behalf, do not forget that his body was broken as a substitute for you. Second thing we need to remember is simply that Christ's blood was shed that you and I may be set free, okay? Christ's blood was shed that I may be free. So substitute on the one hand, freedom on the other hand over here. That's what's taking place in the cup of the new covenant by his blood. This new era of grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is ushered in by which you and I have been completely set free from the confines of the law, enslavement to sin, the condemnation from sin. We're going to talk about all this in just a little bit here. And then freed to live in the abundant life with Jesus Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He has completely set you and me free. As you hold that bread, substitute on the one hand, my sin put Jesus upon the cross, blood and freedom on the other hand, that I could be completely set free. Church, don't forget the context of this entire meal here. The entire thing is taking place in the middle of Passover when freedom is the thing of the week. Like that's the thing that's on the forefront of everyone's mind as they're coming to Jerusalem in order to celebrate and observe the Passover. It is this night in which God would bring freedom to his people, the nation of Israel, and to set them free from the bondage of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. Like that's what the whole thing is about. Don't forget that God is a God who delivers. Don't forget that God is a God who loves so much that he provides a substitute for you by which you'll be set free through the shed blood of a lamb. Israelites, do not forget this message. Like, you remember this story, right? Like, Ten Commandments, the movie, uh, I mean, Charlton Heston, this is out there, right? We, we know the story of the mass exodus. It's a, it's a crazy story, right? They've been enslaved at the hands of the Egyptians for 400 years. This is just after Joseph, just as Moses is coming into attention at the beginning of Exodus. Uh, they've been enslaved for 400 years, crying out to God for deliverance. He finally hears their prayers, raises up Moses. Moses goes to the new Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't want to let his people go. You remember that one? I let my people go. No, they go back and forth. And Moses is like, all right, you really don't want to play this game with the God of Israel. And Pharaoh's like, test me. And so he goes, okay, we're going to do 10 plagues here. And you remember the 10 plagues, they come in and they progressively get a little worse. And somewhere in the middle, like Pharaoh starts to relent a little bit. He's going, oh, wow, this God of Israel, he's got a little bit of power. I probably don't want to cross him any. And so he relents a little bit and says, hey, I'm going to to let you go. Never mind. no, I'm not anymore. And it gets all the way to the end of the 10th and final plague. And at that point in time, the people are exhausted and everybody's exhausted. And Moses, God through Moses is simply saying, okay, enough is enough. I've given you enough time right here. And in chapter 11, verse four of Exodus, God is gonna say through Moses to Pharaoh, he's gonna say, here's the 10th and final plague. He's gonna say about midnight, I, meaning an angel of the Lord, will go throughout all of Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh to the firstborn son of the female slave, even to the firstborn of the cattle as well. There's gonna be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been and ever will be again. In other words, church, what he's showing us is that no one is gonna be exempt from the penalty of death. I mean, not not Pharaoh's household, not not even the slave girl, not even the Israelites, not even the good guys that are there in Egypt, not even the cows, right? Not even the cows are going to be exempt from this. Does this bother anybody else? Is it confusing that the oppressor and the oppressed are being lumped into the exact same category? Like, does it bother you that the slave girl is going to get the same punishment as the guy with the whip? I mean, I mean why does he do this, right? Why, why, why doesn't he just sit there and make a distinction to say, okay, you're the good guys over here, you're the bad guys over here. I mean, we do this all the time since we were kids, right? It's one of the first things we do as children. We've got to discern in our mind, okay, good guys or bad guys? Am I for you or am I against you? Am I getting what I deserve or am I not getting what I deserve? You see this in children all the time. I see it in Caleb. I don't think he's alone in this, but every time I turn on a TV show um, or a basketball, any kind of sporting event or whatever, the first question he's always asking me is, okay, Daddy, who are the good guys who are the bad guys? Who are we cheering for? Who are we cheering against? Who are the good ones? Who are the good ones deserving of my affection? Who are the bad ones? And I've tried to teach them, okay, maroon and white, good. Everything else, like everything else, bad, right? Uh, but like that's the question that he always has, right? Like, like who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And what he's showing us here at the very beginning is just not how God operates. He's just, it's just not how God operates. He's not arbitrarily saying, hey, pretty good over here, pretty bad over here. Here's are the scales. My scales are the exact same as your scales. Instead, what he's showing us is that death comes knocking at every single door. Israelite or Egyptian, slave or free, male or female, good or bad by any arbitrary standard. What he's showing us at the very, very beginning is a holy can have absolutely nothing to do with anything unholy. And church, again, it's one of these things that, that needs to be repeated over and over again because we don't understand that very well in our culture today. But we, we see that right there in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as sin enters the picture, sin breaks everything. The fabric of humanity is torn in two. Adam and Eve are immediately excommunicated from the Garden of Eden simply because they eat a piece of fruit. But here it is. It was in defiance to the Word of God. And sin enters the picture. And because holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy, they're banished from the Garden of Eden. And immediately this relationship with the Holy God is immediately fractured for the rest of eternity. because holy can have absolutely nothing to do with holy. Like, again, this is hard for us to understand because when you look out there and you try to understand holy, what in the world do we have to look at? We we don't have any concept for understanding holy today, right? Like, we, we don't live in a world where we see or look at anything that is actually holy and say, ah, okay, that's how I can understand holiness right here. Like The best things that we have, we can look at cathedrals or something like that, these ornately beautiful things. You walk in and you sit there and you go, okay, I, I, I'm getting a sense maybe of the holiness of God. And, and I would never in my right mind yell or scream, run through this place. Like a, a, you get a sense of the holiness of God, maybe. Maybe a bride on her wedding day in her beautiful white gown, you would never sit there and say, hey, it's a good idea for me to tackle her and do some mud wrestling right here on her wedding day. It's a beautiful, ornate, beautiful bride right there. Like holy can have nothing to do with unholy. Purity can have nothing to do with mud and defilement. And we don't really understand holiness very well, but we kind of get a sense of of purity in some ways, right? If someone were to offer you a glass of water and say, hey, good news, it's only got 2% urine in it today, right? We're not, you're not okay with that. Blood transfusion, good news, there's only 3% AIDS in here, We're, we're pretty good. Like, we get a sense of it a little bit when we're talking about things like purity, like, that, like holy can have absolutely nothing to do with holy. It's why Paul's going to say, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This, this is the bad news of the gospel. We're all in the exact same boat. There's none who are righteous, not even one. And because of those things, the wages of our sin has earned us death because holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy. And beyond that, it's not one of these problems that you or I can fix ourselves. Right. This isn't one of these things, uh, contrary to our value system here in America, this isn't one of these things we can just pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, save ourselves, fix our own problems, and overcome the obstacles that are right there in front of me every single day. I'll never forget, years ago, I um, <laughs> went to India. I have so many great sermon illustrations from that trip. Um, but I remember going out there, one of these days, that we were visiting this place called Asian Christian Academy. They took me away, along with a few other people, to um, to go visit the slums one day and to kind of see the rest of where we were in India. Uh, we were out there preaching, doing a lot of ministry in the day. At the end of the night, one of these ladies invites me into her home. She wants to honor me and, uh, and cook me a meal. And so you don't, you don't deny someone else's hospitality there. And so we go there. And again, this is the roughest, this is the roughest part of where we were in Bangalore, Bangalore India there. And um, I come into this home. And she makes me this meal of rice and chicken, and it's all made with king chili. Anybody had king chili before? Okay, so this is supposed to be the hottest chili in the entire world. And I'm not making that up. It's actually supposed to be the hottest chili. Okay, daddy doesn't do a king chili right here, right? I, I can't do spices or anything like that. Nevertheless, she's cooking it. I don't know. I didn't ask her the menu or anything like that. And so the whole thing's made with king chili. I take these first bites, and I'm lit up, right? My mouth is just on fire. I, I the thing's swelling I'm going nuts here and so they see what's going on and they go over to the little well in the side of their house that you can all see it's this open exposed well and it's not really a well pulling out fresh water it's just it's been all the water that's been dumped in there for the past week and the kid comes over and he grabs me a cup and he scoops me a cup of water and he comes over and he hands it to me and I'm not kidding like the water's brown church and not only is the water brown, but there's chunks inside this water. And I'm sitting there looking at this water, kind of going, what in the world am I going to do right here? I'm, I, I'm dying. Okay, there's that. Um, and if I drink this, I'm probably going to die quicker, right? <laughs> and so, I, I, what, like, what in the world do I do? And the kid's looking at my dilemma going on right here, and he comes over, and he's so sweet, um, he comes over, and he takes his own water, and he's trying to show me and stuff, and he starts pulling out the chunks in his water. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. You can, you can pull out the chunks. And I'm going, buddy, that's not, that's not the problem with the water, <laughs> right? Like, it's not the problem with the water. Like, what I needed was a brand new, completely pure bottle of water. And what I needed was a substitute for what I had right there, someone who could come and do for me what I was unable to do for myself. And it's exactly what God is going to be showing for us there at the beginning of the Exodus, right there at the beginning of the Passover meal, that salvation will be provided through the substitute which is given by God, and it'll come through the shed blood of a lamb. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 12. Here's the instructions. And I want you to notice these instructions. This is the very first Passover meal, which Jesus is also going to be observing with his disciples. But here are the instructions. It says, Tell the entire community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household. Now I want you to pay attention to these details, okay? Cuz the details are going to matter. The animals that you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from among the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the home where they where they eat the lambs. That same night they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire. Along with the bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast, do not eat the meat raw. I don't know if that was a tempting thing to do or not, but don't eat it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs intact. Do not leave any of it until the morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it: with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, for this is the Lord's Passover. So church, it's exactly what they did. And this is essentially the way that they're going to observe the Passover for the next thousand plus years, even until even the, today. There's going to be a lot of, lot of parallels right here. They're going to gather up the herbs. They're going to they're make unleavened bread without yeast, which is symbolic of sinlessness. Leaven and, and yeast is a sign of sin a lot of times. But the reason he's doing it right here is because the exodus, the escape is going to be done in, in, in haste. In other words, they're not going to have time for yeast to come and for everything to be, for the bread to rise or anything like that. And then they're going to take this lamb and they're going to slaughter it. And they're going to roast it over a fire. And they're going to take all the blood of that lamb and they're going to come outside of, the, of, the, of their home. And they're going to start wiping it on the doorposts of their house. One on each side, one on the top. And I want you to just think about this scene for a minute because it's not just a few households that are going to be doing this at one time. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of households that are gonna be all doing this all throughout Egypt at around the same time. Can you imagine like being in a city and can you imagine the smell of like everybody barbecuing at the exact same time? Can you imagine the smell of taking blood and wiping it on the doorposts of your house, having that many homes have blood exposed on the outside there and that many sheep that are slaughtered around the same time. Can you imagine the experience of kind of going through this? And even imagine, I want you to imagine the fear of that night. If you're an Israelite, maybe you're even an Egyptian, you're hearing the rumors, there's an angel of death that's going to pass through the, all of Egypt that night. Can you imagine the fear of that night going, you know what? This is a God who's, who's come through on every other plague that he's talked about. And now he's saying there's an angel of death that's going to be passing throughout all of Egypt. And the only thing that he's going to be looking at is whether or not there's the blood of the lamb on that doorpost, and you happen to be underneath that exact same covering. Like that's what's happening this night. And so in verse 28, we read, this is exactly what the Israelites do. They do exactly what the Lord said to do. Around midnight, the Lord did what he said he was gonna do. And it continues and it says, that there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. A little later on that night, Pharaoh's going to call up Moses and Aaron, and he's going to say, get up and just leave my people, because his son's taken too, and he's grieving. Get out of here, go, you're set free. Go and worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go, but also bless me. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying that I don't think that it was salvific in any way for Pharaoh by any stretch of the imagination, but something's happening along the way. And he's beginning to understand, you know what? There may be something to this God of Moses, God of Israel thing here. And we see this even a little bit later on in verse 37. Check this out. We're going to find out that it it wasn't just the Israelites who were saved. We're going to find out in verse 37. It's going to say there were about 600,000 Israelite men plus women and children, which means roughly around 3 million people that went out that day. And in verse 38, it's going to say many other people also went out too. Church, who are the many other people that also went out that day? they were egyptians they were the people that were looking at what was taking place and they're observing the faith of the israelites they're observing the power of their god who is faithful to come through on these different plagues they're observing what's going on and they're coming to believe and they're seeing the the, uh, the just the insanity of their leader over here and pharaoh and they're saying you know what we're not with pharaoh like we're with them And that night, they're coming to believe that, you know what, there's probably something to this angel of death thing that's going to come through because he's been faithful for so long. We've been seeing their faith in action. And these Egyptians are looking at that thing and saying, hey, you know what, Goldbergs, can we come to your place tonight? Like, we need to come and hang out at your place tonight. And these are Egyptian men, women, and children that are simply saying, we are eating at your place tonight. And we're going to go hang out in your your home. And we're going to be covered by that blood. Church, can you imagine the fear of them that night? Egyptians coming to believe that, hey, God is coming through. An angel of death is going to pass through. I love the way D.A. Carson explains this. He says, he goes, I want you to think about two different families, Israelites who were faithful forever. These people knew the word of God. They were the promised people of God. They knew and they had complete profound confidence that this was going to take place, and they knew exactly what was taking take place. Imagine the Egyptians that are coming in, and their faith is about this big. Anyone ever feel like your faith is about this big? Anyone ever feel like, hey, those are the 18 Christians over there. I happen to be the D minus ones that are barely in, right? I want you to imagine these two families and one's completely confident. The other is barely getting in. Egyptians hanging out with the Goldbergs one night, having barbecue and simply saying, I don't understand what's fully going on here tonight. All I know is I want to be right there. And he's asked this question. He says, which of the two families is going to be saved that night? And of course, the answer is that both families are going to be saved that night. Because as the angel of death passes throughout all of Egypt, the only thing he is looking for is, are you covered by the blood of the lamb? Church, that's the meal that Jesus is having with his disciples that night. And he's doing it along with hundreds of other thousands of, of Jews that have all come to Jerusalem to, to remember what God did so long ago and the salvation of his people through the shed blood, blood of the lamb. Except that Jesus is taking this meal and he's saying, okay, There's a new meaning to this. It's no longer just about that day way back then. I'm turning this whole thing around. And what you need to understand is that I actually am the Passover lamb who was slain. This whole thing that you've been observing and remembering, the entire thing that you've been remembering this whole time has always been pointing to me. And we're going to see that in the text in verse 3, when the Israelites selected a lamb on the 10th day of the month. John's going to be really, really clear about this, that he is the lamb of God who was slain. And we're going to read about it, that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month on Palm Sunday. In verse 5, the the lamb had to be a male that was without defect. Hebrews is going to go above and beyond in order to clearly communicate that Jesus was the Holy One of Israel who offered himself up without blemish or without defect. In verse 6, when they had observed the lamb until the 14th day of the month in order to make sure that it really was without defect, what have we been talking about the past few weeks in Matthew 22 and 23? The Pharisees and the Sadducees are testing and observing Jesus to figure out if he really was the Messiah, the promised son of God. They're observing him from Palm Sunday until the 14th of the month. In verse 8, which was also on the 14th, uh, the lamb is going to be roasted over a fire on a spit that was shaped like a cross. In verse 9, there's specific instruction not to break any of the bones and to leave the lamb fully intact. What do we read about in John 19, 36? Like when the Roman soldiers come and they come to break Jesus' legs while he's hanging on that cross in order to quicken his death. They come and they figure out that he's already dead and so it says none of his bones would be broken and they simply took him down. In verse 10, they're specifically told, do not leave any other thing over until the next morning. Make sure that everything is consumed. John 19, 31, right after Jesus had died, instead of leaving his body upon the cross, which is typically what they would have done in order to bring about shame upon the criminal that was hanging upon that cross, in order to let the vultures of the sky come and peck away at the flesh, instead of leaving him up there for three days, the word of God says that immediately as that happened, they took down his body and they prepared it for burial. Even in verse 22 Exodus chapter 12, it says that they used hyssop in order to sprinkle the blood on the mantle of the doorway. Church, like hyssop is this bush that where the stem has water inside of it. So I want you to picture this scene here. The people are coming out, they're taking this hyssop branch, and they're dipping it in the blood of the lamb. And they they take this brush that's got water in the stem, and they're going like this up and down on the doorway of their house, over and over and over again, wiping, door, wiping blood on the doorway post right there and at the exact same time, spreading water on that post. Blood representing that a life has been taken, water representing that a life has been received. Well, church, what do we receive when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when the soldiers come and they pierce Jesus' side? John 19, 34 says, they pierce his side with a spear and immediately blood and water come out because Christ's life which was taken means that now eternal life can be received. Church, in every possible way, Jesus is showing us he is the promised lamb. He is the Passover lamb. It's why John the Baptist is going to look on him, and immediately he's going to look on him and say, behold the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of this world. Church, it's why he did not even need the lamb on that Passover night, because what he's communicating is, I am the Passover lamb, and my sacrifice will be sufficient for the covering of sins once and for all. Revelation chapter 5 it's going to say that the elders and the saints are beholding his beauty, and it's going to say that they fell down before the Lamb of God. And it says that they sang out a brand new song, crying out, worthy, 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 for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men and women from every single tribe, tongue, and nation. Church, that's what he came to do, to completely set his people free, to purchase us by his blood, that you and I may be completely set free, freed from the burden of the law, freed from being enslaved to our sin, freed from the condemnation of sin, because now that you and I are in Jesus Christ, Paul's going to be clear in Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has now set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, that's why Paul can celebrate so much and he can say things like, don't be deceived because fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, pretty much everything that you and I could possibly imagine will not inherit the kingdom of God. However, here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. But you were washed by the blood of the lamb and you were sanctified and set apart by the Holy Spirit and called holy by God. And you are justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because you are righteous, but simply because you're sitting under the blood of the Lamb who was slain on your behalf. Church, that is what we are called to remember every single time you take that bread and you take that cup. It was Christ's body that was broken for me. It was Christ's blood that was shed that I could be fully set free. Church, it's why the cross is an act of love the only way that the cross is an act of love like the only way that the cross is a beautiful thing worthy of celebration is if my life was on the line and in the middle of that place God and his love sent Jesus to be the substitute on our behalf I mean it'd be like if I'm walking down the street with Caleb and we're holding hands and skipping around and I'm saying buddy I love you so much and he's going daddy I don't believe you and I'm going buddy I I know you don't understand like I really love you and he's like that I don't know that you do And I'm saying, hold on, I'm going to show you that I love you. And if I were to dive in the middle of oncoming traffic, like that's not an act of love, is it? It's an act of lunacy. The only way that that would be an act of love is if he were in the middle of that street and he were playing and he didn't see the truck that was coming his way. And I did, and in the middle of that place, in my love, I dove in the middle of that street and I shoved him out of the way. And in the process of doing so, he continues to live, and my life was taken. That's what substitution is. That's why the cross is beautiful. My sin put Jesus there. My sin earned me death and separation from him. In the middle of that place, God sent Jesus to live the sinless life that I could not live. To go to that cross to suffer, bleed, and die, that I could be completely set free. That's why we worship church. Don't ever run from the doctrine of sin. Don't ever run from how fallen we are because it's in the middle of understanding how far away we were It's when we come to appreciate how far he came in order to redeem us by his blood that we could be completely set free. That's where worship is found. I want to wrap up with this. This It's a fun story from... Lord of the Rings. Anybody else a Lord of the Rings fan? Actually, not a huge one. Anyway, they make great stories and stuff. So <laughs> this is uh, one of the scenes from the Lord of the Rings, and Pippin is sitting there behind the wall. And you remember this, like death is looming. It's ominous. The enemy's crashing in. They're outnumbered. They know that their time is coming to an end. And they're hopeless. And everybody's kind of despairing at this time. And Pippin's looking out. And I think the movie scene gets really extended for a long time, of course. And and then all of a sudden, he hears the horns of Rohan blaring in the distance. You remember this? And all of a sudden, the armies of Rohan, they come in, and these massive armies, they come to save the day. And The book goes into a lot more detail about what's going on in Pippin's mind, but it says that every single time from that day forward, when Pippin would hear the sound of a horn, it says that it would make him cry because it reminded him of the day of his salvation. This day when he sat there and death was knocking at his door, when he was staring at it face to face and he sat there and he, he remembered the hopelessness of that moment. And then he heard the blaring of that horn. And it just all of a sudden he says, that, it says that every time he hears the, the horn blare, it just reminds him of the day of his salvation. When the armies of Rohan would come and deliver him from that imminent death. Church, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's the horn in the distance that connects us with Jesus and reminds us that we were lost and dead in our sins. And God in his infinite love sent Jesus, broken for us. His blood shed for us that you and me could be completely set free. Let's not miss what's happening at the table.